go really well and fast and y'all will be out of here or, or it's going to drag out for a long time so get comfortable. I don't know. But um, if you're here for the first time today, we just want to give you a, an extra special welcome today. Thank you so much for being here. And if, uh, if you would, take one of the cards that's uh, on one of the seats around you and just help us to get to know you that way. Just fill it out. We promise we won't come knocking on your door unless you ask us to. Uh, none of that. We won't bother you, but uh, we would love to at least send you a note and let you know that we appreciate you being here. And it just is a step in us getting to know you. Well, this morning we're continuing our series, uh, taking a really good, strong look at the Sermon on the Mount, this famous sermon that Jesus preached that's found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And although it contains some of those famous words of Jesus, it's still one of those things where when we actually take a close look and read it carefully, we might scratch our heads and say, seriously, <laughs> seriously, Jesus, did you really mean that? And last week, Wesley started us off with a bang, uh, talking about something very famous called the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses of chapter 5. And in those statements, Jesus gives an overview to his followers of, of what it's like to be and to have a characteristic of a follower. It describes a new way of life. And if you remember, the Beatitudes teach us some things. They make us recognize our need for God and to do something about it. They teach us a new way to think and what it means to be blessed. And it encourages us to make space both for the disciples and the crowd. And then, a few weeks ago, back on June 16th, I think that may have been the last time I preached. Um, you know I can never do things just, just the you know, straight and narrow way. I always have to throw, throw in a kink somewhere. So it's coming today too. Just wait. But uh, last time we had J.D., my son, come up, and he preached on the next section of Scripture, the salt and light section. Jesus compared his followers and encouraged them to be salt and light. And what J.D. did was he connected the dots for us, helped us to see what good metaphors that salt and light were. That salt adds flavor, it causes thirst, it heals, it preserves, that light deters evil, it helps you see, it encourages growth, and it attracts. So it's easy to see why Jesus used those two metaphors. So today now we are in chapter 5, but we're at verse 17 to the end of the chapter. And here Jesus is going to begin to give us some practical ways to live out the Beatitudes, some practical ways to be salt and light. But before we dive in, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the wonderful story of Jesus. We thank you that um, because of his example, he has shown us how to live. But also, God, when we do mess up, when we do fail, he has made a way. He has made access to you, Heavenly Father. And God, we thank you for your spirit that dwells within us. We thank you that because of your spirit, these words have hope. Without your spirit, they would be a curse. But God, we, we know that you are here to help us. You are here to help us understand. You are here to help us to live these words out. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so how many of you back when you were in school had this kid in your class? Maybe it was you. 
So the teacher is teaching, and, and it, it is the lecture of her life. It's from her soul. It's from her heart. She just knows she's reaching every kid out there, even the thickest skulls. You know, she can just see tears in some of their eyes because of what she's presenting up in front of the, the class. And in the back, that, that, that hard student that she's always had trouble with is raising a hand, and she's like, oh, this is it. He's going to ask a question. I'm going to be able to answer and give him this knowledge, and it's, it's, it's just going to be life-changing for this kid. Um... Excuse me, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> so frustrating, right? Is this going to be on the test? Well, there were people in Jesus' day that wanted to know, is this going to be on the test? They were the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes were obsessed with what was on the test. These guys spent all of their days trying to figure out what the laws of God were, what they exactly meant, and in the meantime, they were missing God himself. They, were, they even accused Jesus of breaking some of these laws. They went as far as to call him a blasphemer. So at the beginning of today's section of Scripture, Jesus needs to set some things straight. He needs to set some things straight with his accusers and with his disciples. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, the 17th verse. And let's read just the first three verses here. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Well, before we continue, let me just do a little bit of review about what the law and the prophets are. If you have your Bible with you, you can open it and see it's not right down the middle, but there, there's two sections to your Bible. And the, the first 39 books are called the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And then the last 27 books are the New Testament or the New Covenant. And the Old Testament is, was the scripture of Jesus' day. That's all they had. And that, that scripture had the story of creation. It had the story of God's people, Israel. And it had the covenant that he made with his people, Israel. And in that, it also had the laws and the promises that were attached to this covenant. The Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites, called this the Torah. So if, even today, if you were to talk to a Jewish person, they would, they would know what the Torah was. This was this Old Testament law. I want you to take a, a careful look at what Jesus says about it. He says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, the Torah, but to fulfill it. Now, we could do a whole sermon, maybe even a whole series on just that little part right there because it's chock full of meaning. It's chock full of, of great theology about who Jesus was. But <clears throat> fasten your seatbelt. We're going to do this in two minutes. All right. About what it means when Jesus says... I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, first, he fulfilled the prophecies that were made about him. After his resurrection, you can look in Luke 24, the 44th verse. This is what he said to his disciples. This is what I told you while I was, 
<clears throat> excuse me, while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So this is the first way that Jesus actually fulfilled the law was there was a lot in the Old Testament that was prophetic about Jesus and about him coming. And then secondly, he fulfilled the demands of the Old Covenant. You see, in the Old Covenant, God demanded from his people Israel a sacrifice. That sacrifice was demanded so that, that their sins would be taken away. And so Jesus became the ultimate, final sacrifice. If you look at Hebrews, the 10th chapter, you'll see that, that Jesus was that final sacrifice. He, was, he met the demands of the Old Covenant. And then lastly, Jesus fulfills the law by being the ultimate authority on them. He is the ultimate commentator. He is the one that, that can interpret the law and tell us exactly what the original intent was. And this is what he's going to be doing here in these verses. I think Wesley mentioned this very recently. And it's this, that, that the Old Testament, the law, is like guardrails. You know, when you're on the highway, and especially if you're on like a mountainous highway, and it's like this, and it's like this, and it's like this. Aren't you glad that there's guardrails? You know, so you don't go off the cliff. But I tell you this, if you are using the guardrails in order to stay on the road, uh, you need your license taken away. <laughs> the guardrails are there to keep you from straying off the road, but they're not there to keep you on the road. It's, it's like when you were a kid and you had training wheels on your bicycle, right? They were fine when you were four years old, but when you're 10, if you still had those training wheels on your bicycle, you're not cool. You, you need those training wheels off. And you need to be balancing your bicycle without the training wheels. In their preoccupation to make good on the test, the Pharisees and the scribes were not only obsessed with these guardrails, but they were missing the fun and the drive. They weren't having a good drive. They even created an additional book called the Talmud that gave commentary and additional rules just to make sure that these rules were followed exactly right. They wanted to get it right on the test. And then look at how Jesus challenges his disciples. He says, For I tell you, and this is at the end of what we just read, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> now I want to admit, admit to you, when I first read this, I was confused. You see, I thought I'd read somewhere that Jesus' way was supposed to be easy and it was supposed to be light. And here he is, why is he telling me that, that my righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes? And, and if they, the experts in the law, couldn't get it right, how does he expect me to get it right? What does he mean by my righteousness should surpass that? of the Pharisees and the scribes. You see, the, the problem was this. <clears throat> the Pharisees were concerned with the facts on the test. But they were not allowing those facts on the test to change their hearts and their minds. It was all about actions. This righteousness that Jesus refers to <clears throat> is not just about actions, but it's about the mind and it's about the heart. It's a deeper righteousness. You see, the scripture says, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the what? At the heart. The surpassing righteousness goes beyond the legality of the law. 
to the intent and the heart of the law. Jesus was not advocating the way that the Pharisees were following the law, nor was he abolishing the law. He was proclaiming that the meaning of the law must be interpreted because of his coming and through his teaching. Hebrews 10.16 says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Can someone give me a... There's water downstairs in the refrigerator. Because I know people are going to get tired of this. I bet you're tired of it already. So when I was reflecting on this, it made me think of this. Y'all remember that? Anybody recognize that? What is this? Wax on. Okay, now some of you are lost, so I've got another one for you. All right. You young, you young ones, what's that? Jacket on, jacket off. Jacket on, jacket off. You see, Daniel, Danielson, and Dre, they missed the point. They, they, they missed the point of what these menial tasks were about, didn't they? And when... When Mr. Miyagi and, and Mr. Han gave them these tasks, they were just frustrated with the tasks, saying, what is this all about? They didn't realize that they were training for something much greater, much bigger. And so in Matthew 5, 21 through 47, Jesus pushes forward and helps us to see how the Beatitudes help the follower of Christ to be the kind of person that the Old Testament law intended for them to be. And Jesus, thank you, sir, so much. Jesus gives six illustrations from the law about how this new beatitude way of life works itself out in the disciples' life. This this new new beatitude, I like that, it sounds like new attitude, new beatitude way of life. And each one of these illustrations begins with, you have heard it said, and then it ends with, but I say, excuse me. So in verse 21, Jesus calls out the commandment that's found in the Ten Commandments. It's commandment number six, which is, Thou shalt not murder. Would you look at uh, verse 21 with me? You've heard it said that it was said to people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, I think it's probably safe to say that none of you in this room, at least I don't think, have crossed the guardrail of thou shalt not murder, right? Could I I see a show of hands of the murderers in the room? No? Nobody? All right, okay, so we're good on that. And, And Jesus knew that. He started with one that he knew not many in his crowd had committed, murder. But then he says, wait a minute, that's not enough. That's not enough. What is it that leads to murder? Murder often begins with just a little irritation that develops into a seething anger that turns to hatred. 1 John 3.15 reiterates Jesus' teaching here when it says, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So you may think you're off the hook, because you're like, Raka. I've never called anybody a Raka. <laughs> I, 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 don't even, I don't even know what that term means. Well, let me help you with what it means, and now you're back on the hook. You see, Raka meant idiot, numbskull, 
stupid. And then the second insult that he mentions, you fool, it wasn't just about a mental capacity fool, but it was actually a slam on a person's moral character. Because in the, in the Old Covenant it said, a fool says in his heart there is no God. And so you're calling somebody a fool, you are questioning his moral standing, his moral character. You see, our angry thoughts and our, our words are like, like murder. They violate another person. They violate God and whose image that person has created. And they violate ourselves since we've been created to be in a healthy and a living community. When we fly off the handle in rage or hatred or when we secretly gossip about somebody in our anger, we are assassinating the personal worth of another person. Let me be clear, it's not anger that's the sin. It's uncontrollable anger. It's anger that seeks to harm. Wesley read part of this last week from Ephesians 4. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are members of one body. In your anger, what? Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And Jesus lived this out himself. He lived it out by being slow to anger, by being patient with those around him, even people who were opposing him. And when he did show his anger, like when he cleared out the temple, it was a righteous anger. And then Jesus finishes out this, this little section by giving us two very practical, practical illustrations. One, from church. He says, look, if you're headed to church to worship me and you remember that somebody's got something against you, you go take care of that first. Go take care of that first before you come and offer any worship. And then he says, also, why don't you try to settle matters outside of court? Don't let them get to court. Try to make friends of people that are trying to sue you. That's, that's real practical advice, isn't it? It's tough stuff, though. But Jesus here is reminding his followers again, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then in verse 27, Jesus tackles commandment number 7. Look at it. Verse 27. You have heard it sa- you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone, whoa, that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus ups the game. He makes it not just about the act. He makes it about the mind. He makes it about the heart. You see, it's not just enough to not sleep with someone that's not your spouse. You see, Jesus thinks more highly of you and of me than that. To clarify, he's not talking about admiring a beautiful person and saying, wow, she's beautiful. Oh, he's, he's a handsome guy. No, he's talking about an ongoing look that, that objectifies that person. That willful meditation that, that, that moves from appreciation to desire, to possession for your own self-gratification. You see, just as anger leads to murder, lust leads to adultery. I love this quote from Erasmus. We sow our thoughts and we reap our actions. We sow our actions and we reap our habits. We sow our habits and we reap our characters. We sow our characters and we reap our destiny. Now, the Bible doesn't talk about Jesus being tempted in a sexual way with lustful thoughts. But you know what? We can assume that he was, and here's why. In Hebrews 4.15, it says that Jesus was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. 
And during the takeover series, you can remember Wesley read about the temptations of Jesus and how one of those temptations was about one of his physical needs. It was about hunger, and he didn't give in. For us today, this is a tough, tough world to, to obey this command, isn't it? There's pornography everywhere. You don't have to go into a, 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 a seedy bookstore for pornography. It is everywhere. It, it, it's fed into your home, on the Internet, on the television, movies and magazines. And, and it, it's everywhere. And men, you know that you and I are, are particularly vulnerable here because we are stimulated visually. And how much pain and heartache has been caused. And it started with, with, with pornography and then lust, and then it may or may not have, have fleshed itself out in adultery. So Jesus wants to help us here. <laughs> and he lightens the mood, I think, the way I read it, with a little hyperbole that was kind of funny, at least it's funny to me, <laughs> but I have a sick sense of humor. But <laughs> verses 29 and 30, and you, you, you just fill in the, the lines and the blanks here, but 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for you, your whole body to go into hell. Okay, everybody, so what we're going to do, I brought my hacksaw this morning. We're going to make a line right here. So any takers, first, first one? Okay, well, obviously it's hyperbole, but the point here is this. Sometimes it, it takes extreme measures, doesn't it, for us to change our minds, for us to change our habits, for us to change our ways of doing. It takes an extreme thing. For a while, I didn't have Internet coming into my home. And now I have something called triplexchurch.com. It's a, it's a filter. And anything that, that I look at on, on, on the Internet, it gets emailed to my wife. So, yeah, write or just memorize it, guys. I know you don't want to write it down. <laughs> you don't want anybody seeing you writing it. Or the, you may need some, a little extra help, maybe with a book. Um, there's a couple books that I read. These are kind of the, the standard books. There's, a, there's probably more than this out there now. But the one I read years ago was called Every Man's Battle by Stephen Arterburn. There's a whole series now. There's also Every Woman's Battle. He co-wrote that one. Um, it's uh, Etheridge, Shannon Etheridge. Um, there's Every Young Man's Battle, Every Young Woman's Battle. I don't know, there may be, I don't know all the battles that are there, but there, there's plenty of help that's out there. I want to I wanna give you one just quick one. Um, you know, Scripture often helps. And so I want you to memorize Job 31.1. And it says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. And you fill in the blank. You can replace young woman with whatever you want to replace it with. But memorize that. Let that be something that, that helps you. Make a covenant with your eyes. Remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. And Jesus goes on challenging the conventional interpretation of the law. In verses 31 and 32, he starts talking about divorce. 
And uh, for sake of time, we're going to skip through some of these. Um, but let me just uh, say very quickly um, that Jesus, his words here were not to condemn a divorced person. And that's not our intent here today. But Jesus was about marriage. The Pharisees were concerned about what the grounds for divorce were. Jesus wanted to raise the conversation and say, I want you to have healthy, strong marriages. I want you to communicate. I want you to work. I want you to, to be poor in spirit, be willing to say, I'm, I'm wrong. And then in verses 33 through 37, he talks about honesty and speech. You see, the, the people of Jesus' day had a habit of mincing words so that they could get out of commitments. And they would say, yeah, I swear by the gold on the temple. And that would get them out of it. But if they swore by the temple, they had to do it. Write down this, this um, section of Scripture. One for the divorce. Um, Jesus further talks about it. Matthew 19, 3 through 9. Read that on your own about divorce. And then Jesus um, further talks about this honesty of speech in Matthew 23, 16 through 22. But I want to finish this morning by taking a look at the last two ways that Jesus flips this conventional way of thinking about the law. These two are the most quoted words of Jesus, but perhaps the least heeded. First, uh, in verse 38, 38 to 42, let's read this together. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. In other words, don't retaliate. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, first of all, it might shock you that this eye for eye, tooth for tooth principle actually does come from the Bible. You see, in Exodus 21, God, God was giving laws to his people, but his people had been in slavery for 400 years. And so these laws, part of the intent of the law was to teach a people who had once been enslaved how to live like free people. So some of the laws that, that God gave were for individuals. They were for the individual to obey. But some of the other laws were for the state. They were for the judges. They were for the judges to be able to keep peace. And this eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth principle was one of those that was given to judges so that people wouldn't be taking personal revenge on people. And they could come before a judge and he could say, he could determine, yes, he's guilty. Eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth. He took a life, his life will be taken. But people in Jesus' day... We're taking this principle and using it exactly for the opposite. They were using it for personal revenge, and they were suing. They were about as sue happy as we are. It's a natural instinct, isn't it? Somebody does something to you, <laughs> you know, don't just stand there. Get them back. I, I, I won't hit first, but I will hit last. Jesus uses four examples which are still very relevant, but I want to talk about just the first one. The most famous one is the one that's quoted the most often, and turn the other cheek. In the day of Jesus, this, this slap, it was an insult. You know, you've seen the old English movies where they take the glove off and... Well, that's what this was. This was a slap. This was, this was I insult you and your mother too. But people today may not literally slap you in the face, but, they do, but you do feel the sting of their insults. You do feel the 
sting of being jilted or snubbed. You do feel the sting of being gossiped about. And our immediate reaction is not usually to turn the other cheek. But Jesus is calling us to a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. And when we feel that it is our every right to retaliate, he's calling us to stand down. Let's look at Romans 12, 17 through 21. And, and this, this writer reiterates the words of Jesus and expounds on them. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We want to believe that Jesus wasn't serious about this one. (laughs) Yeah, that would be good in principle, but you don't know my life. You you don't know my real life. And we try to rationalize, and then we remember that Jesus had a real life too. And we remember that he was accused, and he was spit upon, and he was slapped, and he was beaten. And the scriptures foretold of him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. And hand in hand, in the last one, Jesus went on to talk about how we are to treat people that don't like us at all, that hate us. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? That was was kind of a slam too. First, let me point out that only part of the conventional wisdom that, that Jesus brings out was actually truth from, from the law. That part about love your neighbors, that was right. But nowhere in the law was it found to hate your enemies. That was a twisted assumption that people made. Oh, well, if I have to love my neighbor, then I can hate my enemy. It's a natural thing to do, just like revenge. I hate him because he hates me. Was Jesus serious about this? Really? Love our enemies? Well, I want you to hear from a preacher. This preacher is from Atlanta. This preacher had some enemies. This preacher had enemies that wanted him dead. And this preacher preached a sermon called Loving Your Enemies that was taken right from Matthew 5. And I'd love for you just to listen to him for just a minute.
These powerful words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. remind us that Jesus' desire for us to love our enemies is central to his message and to his life. Wesley has referred to these scriptures a few times in the past weeks. They're kind of becoming a theme for us here at Tri-Cities Church. They're from Romans 5, first from the 8th verse. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Jesus is calling you and me, his followers, to a higher way of living. He wants to take us far beyond simply studying for the test. He wants to renew our minds and our hearts. But we don't have to do it alone. He's promised that he is writing this new law on our hearts and has given us his spirit to help us. I want to finish today just by reading that last verse, verse 48. But I want to read it to you from the message. The message is, is a new interpretation, kind of a commentary interpretation of the scriptures. But I love how the author just puts it plainly. Verse 48. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. <laughs> Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives toward you. Amen. We're going to come uh, to our time of communion, just like we do every Sunday, and uh, our Pastor Wesley is going to come and lead us in that. One of the things that I love the most about this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is that um, it challenges those who've chosen to follow Jesus uh, to go in a new direction. And so we talked last week about the crowds and the disciples and these people had gathered around Jesus. And they gathered around Jesus not just because, not because they were um, somehow fully convinced or fully committed to Jesus, but they gathered around Jesus um, because they were intrigued by him. And they didn't know quite what it meant to be his followers. Um, and, and Jesus fulfilled this, this kind of need that they had. They were desperately seeking someone that could, um, that could help them, that could save them from a particular way of life, and that could provide them hope into the future. And they saw glimmers of that hope in Jesus Christ, um, and they began to follow him. And I love what Jesus does as he turns to them, and he begins to teach them what it means to follow him. And, um, and he challenges them in this new direction, in this new life. Um, this morning, Jamie's preached, and it is a challenging message. It challenges us to go in a new direction, to head in a new way. And as we come to a time of communion, um, the thing that I want you to th think most about this morning is that it's not just symbolic. Communion is not just symbolic of the fact that God is with us or that Jesus is with us on this journey, um, but it's symbolic of the fact that others are with us as well. When Jesus sat down with his disciples, he sat down with his disciples. It wasn't just Jesus and a disciple, but it was Jesus and all of his disciples. And they gathered around a table. And I think the central message there was, I'm with you, and I will be with you always spiritually. But these guys you see sitting around this table, they're going to be with you. 
physically. They're going to walk with you. They're going to say encouraging words to you. They're going to help you along the way. And so as we come to the table for communion and we hear these challenging words from the Sermon on the Mount, I think we, we hear this. Yes, God is with us spiritually and he empowers us to live this out. But you are with one another. And in the same way, you strengthen and encourage and help each other out as you hear these words and as you're challenged by the Sermon on the Mount to go and do differently. You know, the church is a different kind of community than we have in our world today. Community now is kind of you're on your own, I'm on my own, I butt out of your business, you butt out of my business. But God is calling us to a, a deeper community. And, the, and communion reminds us of that. It's a deeper community where I'm deeply involved in your life and you're deeply involved in my life. And I challenge you and you challenge me. And together we become what God has called us to be. So let's pray before we take communion. We have these um, four tables around the room. Um, and just whenever you're comfortable after I finish praying, just feel free to go to one of those tables. Also, there's a bucket on one of those tables if you came prepared to give. Or if you filled out one of the, um, one of the cards that is on your seat, you can put that in the bucket at this time as well. So let's pray. God, we're thankful for um, this morning. We're thankful that um, you speak to us through your word. God, we thank you that, um, that you challenge us. And God, I just pray that you will give us hearts that aren't ignoring your challenging words, but accepting them as guardrails in our lives. God, please help us to see that you're trying to keep us from pain. You're trying to keep us from hardship. You're trying to keep us from tragedy. And so, God, I pray that we won't kick the guardrail, that we won't ignore the guardrail, but we'll become thankful for it. God, I just pray that you help us as a community of your followers to live within these parameters, knowing that you're not out to get us, but you're here to save us. And so, God, we thank you for your saving power. And my prayer is that we will sense your hand reaching out for us and we'll grab hold of it. But we'll also feel the presence of this community with us, reaching out for us. And we'll grab hold of one another. And that together we'll grow up into maturity in Christ Jesus. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.